the project. Kuwait. Learn. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Project. And in this episode, I get to talk to Paul Reddick. He is a former Pittsburgh Pirates scout, and he has been coaching for over 20 years in the United States. He is a baseball and coach guru. What it takes to make it is the genetics to have it and then the will to have self-directed work, to be able to put in that time when no one's looking and there's no outside pressure. Your kid probably isn't going to go to the majors and they're probably not going to go pro, but they can have a good career. I think that's the important point right there. If you didn't create your son to be a major leaguer, there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do to that genetic limitation. It's true. That's no matter how hard you work. Yeah, that's so true. No matter how hard you work. Self-directed work is there's got to be a point where the kid is working on his own and figuring things out and developing himself. So there's Kobe Bryant getting the janitor to open his high school gym at five in the morning so he could take a thousand shots. If your son was made a major leaguer, there's a whole lot you can do to get in the way of that. All this and more in today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Project, and I am joined by Paul Reddick. And most of you know that I have played baseball, coached baseball, lived, eat, and breathed Boston Red Sox for most of my life. I found Paul a few years ago. I'd say probably about 2015, maybe, 2013. I'm really not sure on the timeline, but you and Jeff Cavalier produced a program called Load to Explode, and it was for hitting. And I actually used that with a lot of my players, found that to be extremely useful. And then I found the 90 mile an hour club and everyone's probably thinking, well, what does this have to do with general fitness and everything? Mainly because, I mean, Paul, you can probably talk about this a little bit more in baseball, core strength, shoulder health, everything kind of aligns to every other sport. So you want to talk about shoulder health in baseball. And I would say how that would translate to other sports. So there's a ton I could say on that. The coaches that are listening, one of the foundational things that I teach, and I teach a lot of different things. I teach, obviously, my background is in coaching baseball players. I coach fitness professionals, fit and gym owners, and I coach sports coaches on helping them be better coaches. I coach business owners as well. And in everything that I do, there's a foundational belief that I have, which applies to how we would train the body too. So when people get into talking about specific body parts, I often think that's usually where our eyes go. And what is important doesn't always get our attention. But what gets our attention is usually what we make important. And when you talk about arm health, that gets our attention. I don't know that that's necessarily the most important thing. And it gets our attention mainly because that's where a lot of injuries show up. And just because that's where an injury localizes does not mean that is where a medical professional will apply treatment because that's what a medical professional does, right? You're hurt, they fix the hurt. And so we can maybe talk about the difference between a medical professional does and what you know, like performance coaching does. So what I always look at, if somebody's got a problem with their shoulder, there's a problem in the system. My background really was in injured pitchers. That was my first mission. I was going to rid the world of injured pitchers. And I was a performance consultant with St. Barnabas Hospital, which is a huge medical outfit here on the East Coast in the United States, Health South, and I don't know, probably about a dozen other physical therapy and rehab places. And I worked hands-on with about 600 injured pitchers. So from that, what I often found was that the, an injury that a pitcher had or anyone had, like it's where the injury localized, but the problem somewhere else in the body. If you look at video of injured pitchers performing, you'll find a lot of commonalities in how they move. And so I look at it as a system-wide problem. And 
I don't know how far you want me to go with this first question, but no, <laughs> certainly no, it, go. It, it's, it's you fine. tell me. It's fine. We got a lot of trainers and a lot of physiotherapists that listen to the show and a lot of athletes that complain of shoulder injuries, elbow injuries. And in all honesty, I, I always tell people, look, you look at a baseball player. Most pitchers injure their shoulder or their bicep or their forearm at some point in their career. And they usually yep. have the best rehab methods, honesty, compared to soccer players. You know, what can they tell you about hurting your shoulder? You know, have a flamed up brachialis and how to bring the swelling down. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, right. So you can keep right. going with this. I mean, it's definitely useful. I mean, I'm okay. not going to, I'm not going to stop you, man. <laughs> so look at it like this. I always use the analogy of we're going to build a building and our athlete is a building. Even if you are the athlete, you are a building. So step one in building a building, if you and I were to go purchase land, we would have someone assess that land. We would assess it for, is there water running through this? Is there swamp? Is the ground too hard? Is it too soft? Is there sinkholes in it, right? We would want to assess the land. So step one is to have fertile ground, ground that you can build on. And as coaches, we are not equipped. And this goes for anything. It goes for whether you're running a business or anything like that. You need fertile ground and whatever you're going to do. We're not qualified usually to assess that. So the first step is in assessing fertile ground is a physical therapist. A physical therapist who can do an assessment on you, top to bottom, inside out, left to right, front to back. And they tell you where you're strong, tell you where you're weak, tell you where you're, maybe you're tweaked, maybe where you have a low-level injury, or maybe where you're working around an injury. Athletes are great at doing that. Athletes are great at managing pain too. So athletes usually don't know how good they feel until they start becoming healthy. They're just so used to dealing with pain. And so from there, that is step one. I would not touch an athlete unless they've gone to a physical therapist. And I'll come back to the reason why for that. Because what we really want to do is you just want to pop the hood. You want to make sure that there's no restrictions of movement. There's no imbalances that would interfere in the instruction that we're trying to give. The second part in building a building is the architect. So that's me. That's you, right? We're coaches, right? Like I yeah. know how a pitching motion should go. You know how a squat, a deadlift, all these things, right? You know how they should work, the mechanics of you know, how it should work and how it should function and what the result is. That's the architect. Now, the architect is vital, right? Because the architect has the vision. And the architect usually has the greatest relationship with the athlete, right? They're usually more connected to whatever the athlete's doing. The third person is the builder. And that's what I would call the strength coach. Now, the architect and the strength coach have to have a marriage. They have to work together. The architect is going to say, this is how it should work and this is what it should do. Now, he should go to the builder and say, now build me this. Build me an athlete that can do this and can do this this many times. So in real simple formula, if I have a pitcher, I want you're going to go to the builder and say, here's what his mechanics should look like. Make sure that he's strong enough to, re to, to pull off these mechanics. Now, he's going to have to pull off those mechanics 120 times a game every fifth day for six to nine months. And he's always going to be asked to throw more. Every year of his career, he's going to be asked to throw more. Now, the other job of the architect is he has to also give the strength coach an idea of saying, this is what he's going to be doing this year, next year, and the year after. So Akito picks up a baseball at eight years old today. It's going to throw about eight. If he follows the pitch count, the limits, you know, the recommendations to the letter, we'll throw 18,000 pitches. The tech and the strength coach working together. That's what we're building this kid for. We obviously want to maximize our term success, which is becoming increasingly more important. So we're not only preparing him for the 120 pitches every fifth day for six to nine months for this year, but we're preparing him for the long haul, which is the 18,000 pitches that we want him to throw effectively and safely. Now, the fourth part is once the building's built, you need a building manager. 
And the building manager is make sure that the grounds are kept up, that the pipes are not leaking, that the bathrooms are cleaned, and that the maintenance is done on it. And that, so the building we've put all this time into now is kept up. And the building manager is your game coach. And that's a tougher <laughs> relationship. <laughs> yeah. uh, the first three are a lot easier. The first three are, are super easy. You can definitely get those. Getting your game coach on the same page with all that is a little harder. So what the athlete does or the coach does or whoever is in role, when you're looking at these four pillars, they all have to work together. And one coach from these four aspects or a parent or an advisor or the athlete himself has to step out of that. And the athlete's job is to play the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to make sure that all four of these pillars work together. So there's a great line in the Steve Jobs movie where his partner, Steve Wozniak, they're having an argument and he goes, Steve, you're like, what is it that you do? You don't write code. You don't make hardware. You don't do marketing. You don't do a design. What is it that you do? And Steve Jobs said, I play the orchestra. And that was basically him saying, "Like, I know you write the code and you build the hardware and you do the marketing, but I'm the one who sees how it all works together. And so ideally, there would be a coach or an advisor in the athlete's life that would do that. But sometimes the athlete has to step out and be that for himself. And they have to look at all this. They have to play the orchestra for themselves. And it's the combination of all of those things that give the athlete the best chance to maximize whatever they have and then to obviously do it safely. So I'm a pitching coach by trade, you know, even though it's not what I do day to day anymore, but I teach a lot of pitching coaches. And the biggest fear of a pitching coach is that they're going to lose credit. Yeah. You know, that, you know, especially now kind of the geeks are coming in, right, to baseball. And so the problem though is that if I've got a kid, right, we teach a thing called the power angle. Well, maybe if you want, I can explain it later, but but it requires the kid to have a little his ankle to be functioning properly. Let's say I got a kid whose that ankle is just jammed up, whatever. Maybe he's got a little slight sprain, he's got a tweak, it's tight, whatever it is. And I'm trying to teach him power angle. I could have a bullhorn over his head. He could move in, sleep on my couch. I could teach him every day. That ankle's restricted. He's not going to be able to do the instruction that I'm trying to give him. But now if I can work with a physical therapist who can remove that restriction, now all of a sudden, the athlete can use the instruction that I'm giving him. And so that's how you maximize. If we're thinking in the best interest of, of our athletes, that, that's the way to do it. Because now, and then I don't know how much you follow American sports, but uh, you know I do this with my pitching coaches all the time. They're like, who won the last Super Bowl? I'll say the Patriots. So who's the coach of the Patriots? Belichick. And I'll say, I'll give you hundred bucks. You could tell me who the strength coach of the Patriots is. Yeah, that's a good and one. Nobody ever, nobody ever can. <laughs> that's a good one. That's unless, so true, unless somebody dude. who's like live, you know, <laughs> unless someone really knows them, you know, nobody knows. Well, who's the physical therapist? Nobody knows. Who's the team doctor? Nobody knows. But I'll tell you who does know. Bill Belichick knows. Yeah. And Bill Belichick knows that those guys are as valuable to that team than any of his coordinators, defensive or offensive coordinators. So go back to your question. When somebody has shoulder health. I don't look at shoulder health. I think a lot of times the shoulder is what gets our attention, but what gets our attention is not always important. And I think the shoulder usually takes the brunt of a lot of bad preparation, restrictions in movement, bad physical preparation, strength conditioning, and poor mechanics. And you put all those things together and then what's left to do the work, the shoulder, what's holding the ball is left to do the work. So I think that's what ends up hurting more shoulders than anything. Wow, yeah, that's a loaded answer that translates into, I think, all the sports <laughs> that everyone listens to the show. To be honest with you, like I'm now into CrossFit. I do CrossFit basically full time. That's what I'm trying to do as an older athlete. So, and a lot of that applies to CrossFit and every other sport. Like if you have restrictions, something's going to compensate. When it overcompensates, you're right. putting more mileage on it. But when you grease the wheels properly, as a phrase, then everything kind of works in tandem. So that's a great explanation of it. And I love what you're talking about when you're talking about having those four pillars. 
and everything has to kind of come together and the athlete needs to orchestrate it all or have someone do it for him. A lot of the times it's parents. Nowadays, you see a lot of parents getting involved or it is the athlete if they're older and a little bit more mature. So when we look at stuff like this, we look at what goes into creating the best athlete. What does it actually take? Because you used to be a, an assistant pro scout with the Pittsburgh Pirates, right? So what does it take to get yep. to the pros at any level in any sport, so to speak? Okay, so there's, I believe that there's a difference between truth and honesty. And I can give you an answer that is the truth, but it's not honest. <laughs> <laughs> and so and the honest answer is this, and this is not the most popular uh, thing for parents to hear. Anytime I'm in a, in a room full of parents, I start off with this. God makes the major leaguers. Yeah. And if your son, now whatever you believe, whatever faith back you believe in, right? I'm just using God as a creator. Yeah, something. no, that's fine. But yeah, whatever the faith you believe in, but God creates the major leaguers. And if he created your son a major leaguer, or he didn't, if he didn't create your son to be a major leaguer, there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do to that genetic limitation. That's true. That's no matter 100%. how hard you work. Yeah, that's so true. No matter how hard you work. Now, if your son was made a major leaguer, there's a whole lot you can do to get in the way of that. But what about the argument of like Dustin Pedroia, El Tuve, these guys that genetically they're not gifted, but even Muggsy Bugs. Oh, no, a, I just you know, like those guys. Where would you put them in? How much work, how much effort went into that? Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple of things. So I think anything that you're seeing on the professional level is a genetic major leaguer. So Altuve can generate power. I think I'm whatever he is, five, six, five, seven. I'm just below six foot. I don't think on my best day I could have ever generated as much power as Altuve. So Altuve, Justin Petroia, Tim Linscombe, all those guys, they're major league, they're genetic major leaguers in smaller bodies. That's all it is. So some people confuse the body size with somehow there's a limitation of talent, right? Where if you take, there used to be a pitcher for the Yankees named Kyle Farnsworth who looked like an athlete slash superhero slash supermodel, right? He was like six foot five, jacked, he threw 100 miles an hour. He was like your blue chip, like if you were making athletes, you'd make this guy. But here he was pitching at the same time as a guy like Greg Maddox, who never lifted a weight in his life and never trained. And Greg, they're both genetic major leaguers. It's just, just in different body sizes. So when it comes to hard work, probably the best story I could tell about hard work is every year when I was coaching pitchers year round, I used to, we used to have a special event where we would bring in like a college coach. We'd bring in someone from like every level, like D1, D2, D3. And one year we brought in Fred Hill from Rutgers University, who just recently passed away. But he said, How many parents? And this was all parents and players, you know, at this event. He said, How many of you parents think it's important that your kids work hard? And all the hands go up and say, Keep your hands up if you think I should evaluate your son on how hard he works. And all the hands stayed up. And he said, Put all your hands down. At my level, here's what it takes. You have to get the job done. You have to be able to do the job on your field. Everyone at my level works hard. Working hard is not something special or unique at my level. And you could have heard a pin drop because they were just told the truth for the first time. So Dustin Pedroia works hard. Aaron Judge works hard. They're both genetic major leaguers. There's six foot two guys who look real good who are not genetic major leaguers. And there's five foot six guys like Altuve who maybe don't walk onto a field and turn everybody's head, but they are. And so it always comes down to two things. Number one is genetics is do you have it, right? The greatest, like if you look demonstration of genetics, I'll give you two examples. LeBron James has a brother. Okay. And if you Google LeBron James's brother, you'd think you're looking at LeBron James. I mean, he looks just like LeBron James. And when most people say, when I tell most people LeBron James have a brother, they don't know he has a brother. And so genetically, same mix up. 
yeah. we're not, not getting off track here. <laughs> same, <laughs> yep. same process created both of them, right? Yeah. Yep. Bryce Harper has a brother. But Bryce no, Harper's brother, yeah. I don't know, somewhere in the minor leagues, who's actually a little bit bigger than he is. A little oh, wow. bit more, like a little... So the way the genetics mix up is just... It is just what it is sometimes. So number one is genetics. That's what helps people make it. Number two, if you take all these books, the talent code and all these books that try and tell us that there's some way to game the system of doing this, they'll all say different things, most of which I disagree with. I think if you've spent any significant time around athletes on a day-to-day level for a long period of your life, you would not agree with the 10,000-hour rule. Players decide that they're ready to commit and change, and all of a sudden they change. And there was no 10,000 in there. I think 10,000 hours is something that's good for our minds that kind of gives us hope that it's there. What all of those books agree upon is this, is genetic ability and then self-directed work. So self-directed work is there's got to be a point where the kid is working on his own and figuring things out and developing himself. So there's Kobe Bryant getting the janitor to open his high school gym at five in the morning so he could take a thousand shots. There were stories of Manny Ramirez before there were batting cages and stuff, used to get his friend's cars and line them up so they could turn on the light so he could take batting practice at night. It's things like that. What it takes to make it is the genetics to have it and then the will to have self-directed work, to be able to put in that time when no one's looking and there's no outside pressure. We're in an environment now where parents are trying to force that. And I tell like the parents, the best thing that you can do is wait, is wait. And when he'll get more from the self-motivated, self-directed work than he is going to get from you telling him, get outside and shoot a thousand jumpers. And so those are the things that go into to making an athlete. Now on the genetic ceiling, you know, athletes, when they hear that, they go, well, I don't have major league genetics. Well, that's true. There's only been about 25,000 people in the history of in the last 140 years that had major league genetics. But that doesn't mean you can't have a great career. And it doesn't mean you can't have a great high school career. It doesn't mean that you can't have a great college career. It doesn't mean that you can't maybe even get your education paid for. There's just that realism of that. So you know, those are the two things is you have to have the genetics and you have and self-directed work has to come in at some point. Glad you brought that up about genetics and the self-directed work. Because over here, I mean, we have a lot of people that have the mindset of, oh, if I just hire personal training for my kid, they're going to get better at baseball. And over in Kuwait, we have one practice a week and then we have one game a week or sometimes two games during the weekend. So all in all, they're getting about five hours of baseball, five contact hours. And then when these kids are going home, they're not even watching it. And they'll be like, all right, well, you know, what? I'm going to hire PT. And they'll, they'll call me, they'll call up one of my friends, and then they'll think they're going to miraculously get better. And it's like, no, it's like what you said to have that directive work ethic and to know the truth that your kid probably isn't going to go to the majors and they're probably not going to go pro, but they can have a good career. I think that's the important point right there. Is they can be still yeah. they can still be successful at any level they play at. Now, when you were a scout, just out of curiosity, because I think this applies to a lot of sports. When did they start looking at kids to bring into their system or to bring into college? You probably know more about this than me. But if I was a scout in college and I wanted to sign a kid, when would I start scouting him out? Would I look at him when he's a junior in high school, a freshman? What's it like nowadays? So I could tell you when I stopped. Like totally stop. Generally, the scouting that was generally done around juniors and seniors in high school or college players. And you might follow a kid if you saw some kid who was a freshman or sophomore doing something or or maybe an eighth grader or something. You might write his name down and, and follow him. And then sometimes you would see if you had a bunch of people on your list, and this is like pen and paper, like a notebook, right? The old scout's notebook. 
the way you would track those players is you would block book. So let's say I have to go see XYZ high school who's got like a kid who's a definitely a draft pick. And I got this freshman pitcher who I think is pretty solid. Let me see. Do they play each other? Can I go see them both at the same time? And one kid who might be developing the way it was, the way it is now, I cannot speak with authority on that. I can only speak on what I hear. And I do talk with a ton of people, business, and I hear things as young as 12 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, that there's, I know that there are scouting businesses that are measuring 40-yard dash and velocity on 9, 10, 11-year-old kids. <laughs> That's um, insane. <laughs> so it's hard to distinguish, I think, the parent to distinguish a business that is preying on the parents' desires, wants, and needs, or the parents not wanting to mess up a chance for their kid, and what is actually useful for a college program. So I know you'll hear a lot of colleges now to say, like, we're not looking at we're not looking at all these things. We're looking at really objective data. And in a lot of ways, the technology that has emerged in baseball in the last probably seven to ten years, which now really getting good is actually more helpful to players, I think, because now you're looking at a pitcher's spin rate and you're looking at a hitter's exit velocity and a launch angle. And these are objective measurements. Yeah. Right? So you may have a kid who, I don't know, goes to a tournament or a showcase and he goes 0 for 10, right? But his exit velo was like 88 miles an hour average of, and he had a launch angle of this. Well, there's nothing wrong with the kid. He just didn't get got unlucky. You know, the game of baseball happened to him. You have pitchers with a spin rate of this. And there's so much now objective data to look at a player that... And this is trickling down, moving extremely fast down the ranks of baseball. So there's parts of it that are... I think there's a, an idea around baseball now that you can kind of play it like blackjack. Like it's counting cards. Yeah, like you can yeah. kind of play the odds. You know, Somebody made that argument in a thing I was listening to. And the only problem with that is that there's 52 cards in a deck or however many are in a deck, right? So yep. you can count into that because there is a limitation to it. But in baseball, there's... However, in a blackjack, there's 52 possibilities. In baseball, there's infinite possibilities, yeah. right? Of Playing the odds is great and stuff like that. But I think at some point, there's there will be a stop to that technology that is only useful to a certain point. And then you're still going to have to... Technology is not going to help get a guy who's anxious or nervous back onto the field. It's not going to get a guy to work hard. It's not going to get a guy who maybe should be competing at a different level to do that. You know, it's, it's always going to take a human inspiring another human to do that. But with scouting, I see that is really where it's going. So now there's good and bad with that. I think it's good because I think some players that maybe would have gotten missed before get a chance. But I also think that sometimes people are looking, just looking at that numbers and not looking at the player, not looking at, yeah. the, at the guy. So there are intangibles. There are things that go into a locker room and go into a team that hopefully... You know, all these things go in waves, right? What'll happen is the technology will become so dominant that, you know, you'll have a clubhouse of guys that don't even look up from their locker room and don't talk. They don't have to go swing back on the other side to kind of bring in some people to get those intangibles and get the team together to play together. Because it's not just a bunch of statistics and numbers and measurements playing against another group of statistics, numbers and measurements. You know, it's people playing against people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's understandable. What's your perspective on... I'm just curious here because I talk about it with my buddies here all the time. And we've all coached for a long time. I grew up around the game and my buddy Tad, he grew up around the game too. And it's so different now back when we were kids and we had like Senior Babe Ruth, there was Legion Baseball, there there were only a handful of things. And now it's all these different travel teams and this and that and showcases. And it's almost turned into a business. It's almost turned into a cash cow 
for a lot of people. So how is that from your perspective, talking about it or looking at that? Yeah, I have some strong and certainly voiced feelings on it. We do a podcast, which is we're in the middle of a we ended the season last year. We've done two seasons of a podcast called Baseball Dads Podcast. So I have a lot of opinions on it. Yeah, I've, and I've, listened, I've, listened, gen- I've listened to it. <laughs> I've, I've listened to Baseball oh, awesome. Dads. Cool, yeah, yeah. cool. <laughs> so the problem with it is this. There's always two tracks of development for players. And this is where I think long-term baseball is going to really suffer. I think it is already starting to trickle up that way. You have kids, <clears throat> I call them iPhones. So, sorry, not, not to cut you off though. But I just want to state for the listeners that this doesn't only apply for baseball. I think this applies across a lot of sports. And if you look oh, at baseball, course, yeah. baseball has kind of been the pioneer when it comes to sabermetrics. And a lot of you don't know what yeah. that is. Go Google sabermetrics and you'll understand that baseball really initiated the numbers game for all sports. And I think baseball was the first sport that used batting averages and everything. And, you know, there's so many numbers in it. So... Just so everybody knows, don't tune out. Listen to this because it does apply. So yeah, sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Yeah. There's two tracks of development in everything we do in life in baseball. So track one is the iPhone. So if I pull out our iPhones and I take a picture, that picture is instantly developed, right? We, what we have early on in baseball is we have seven, eight, nine-year-old players that are just early developers, basically a two-year standard deviation in growth. So that's why you can have a nine-year-old that looks like a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old that looks like an 11-year-old. So what happens is a lot of the iPhone players, quote unquote, iPhone players, they get scooped up by underqualified and incompetent coaches and mostly to win fake rings and plastic trophies. And they're not better players. They're just early developed. They're just developed faster. The deviation, the years, the standard deviation is just moving in their favor. So you have players that are just early developing players. They're just bigger, faster, stronger than the other kids. Now, We'll come back to them in a second because it causes a problem. Then you have the late developers, which I would call the Polaroids, right? Where you Polaroid picture, for those who don't know, so you just have to take a picture and then put it down and wait for it to develop for about a half hour. And so late developers, the kids who are not bigger, stronger, faster at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, what happens is that the travel ball team comes in and the coach, and there's also a little bit of an unholy relationship between paying to be on teams, right? So like we were kids, like maybe my dad paid 30 bucks for the little league, you yeah. know? a year to play in Little League or something like that. Now, it's anywhere from three to five. I've heard upwards of ten dollars to $15,000 wow. to play wow. on certain teams. That, so that's now there's an, there's an expectation. Yeah, there's an expectation on the coach now. It's not The coach is not there to develop. It used to say like that a coach would need players to develop. Now, we look at it as that players develop coaches. Coaches are looking for players to develop them. In other words, give me a bunch of stronger, faster kids, and then I'll put them on a team and we'll win. And I'll be a better coach because I assembled bigger, faster, stronger players. So the travel ball coach who now, because everyone's written a check to be on this team, there's an incredible pressure for that coach to win. And so he doesn't have time to develop players. He needs players. He needs bigger, faster, stronger now. So now he's saying to the nine-year-old kid who's who's a Polaroid saying, you know, you're a good kid and I like you, but I've got to win six tournaments this year. I just don't have time. I don't have a roster spot to develop you. And so what happens is the late developing kid lacks competitive opportunities because they end up playing in local rec leagues, stuff like that, which are diminishing. Yeah, um, yeah. But now the early developing kid, the early developing kid, he has plenty of competitive experience, but he doesn't develop the skills of the game. And so what happens is now we're seeing at 13 and 14, we're seeing a lot of early developing kids that are underskilled and burned out. And all of a sudden when they get a little hard, 
right? When kids start throwing curveballs, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you know, because they were 5'11 at nine years old, now all of a sudden they're 15, everyone's 5'11. And all of a sudden, what happens to the early developing players is that their greatest skill was that they were bigger, faster, and stronger earlier than everyone else. And now, once that starts to even out, they don't know how to play because their greatest advantage was taken away from them, has been minimized, neutralized. And so what we're seeing is a lot, you know, we're going to miss out on a lot of Andy Pettit's, Don Mattingly's, Jorge Posada's, guys that were drafted in 25th, 26th, 27th round that not necessarily as kids were great baseball players. And what you're going to end up with, I think, is a lot of Bryce Harper's. A lot of guys who are individual stat guys, they're me guys, they're, look what happened to the Nationals, they lost their best player and won the World Series. Yeah. And so eventually that's what baseball is going to end up fighting is this, that really just hoping that they can get those players that aren't burnt out and to be able to make something of them. But I think they're losing a vast generation of players to early developing players are getting burnt out and they're not developing as athletes and the late developing players are not getting the opportunities to really develop. That tournament, that tournament scene and that whole tournament culture has created that situation. That is a friggin' amazing perspective, dude. <laughs> like that's a, that's a really good perspective. I never even thought of it that way or even looked at it from that perspective. And we're in Kuwait, so you can't blame me for that. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not exposed to baseball as much as I, I was used to, but that's a really good perspective on it. And the reason why I say that is because we have Dubai has an amazing league. They have a lot of good players. They had a kid throwing probably plus ninety a couple of years ago. I mean, this kid was just throwing hard cheese and he got a full ride somewhere. But Dubai has a bigger mix of expats or Americans over there versus Kuwait. So they do have that talent pool. But you get some of the, the parents here that see that and they're like, oh, my kid's good in Kuwait. And I, I keep trying to remind them they're good in Kuwait. I played in Kuwait. You know, and then when I went to college in the States, it was reality check. You know, it was a big reality check for me. I you know, hit like 140 my first year, you know, Juco, because I'd never saw 80 mile an hour, you know, an 80 mile an hour fastball or a good curveball. Took me a year to a year with a lot of work in the cage just to catch up a little bit. So, you know, can you talk about that a little bit more in terms of the standards of leagues of play? And you said that the normal leagues that we had in the towns is kind of being diluted and everyone's going towards travel ball or whatever. What's that going to mean for the kids that can't afford travel ball? And I'm saying this again across all perspectives, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, because you're seeing it in every sport. So what is this going to mean for the player later on that can't afford it? I do think, I was told a while ago, more, more than 18 months ago, I was told that within 18 months, there was going to be reform coming to the youth baseball scene. So it was more than 18 months. I was told 18 months. I, I am hopeful that there will be some kind of reform that will come to this, that at least some way to that kids can't play on two or three travel teams and that there's going to be funding to make sure that they the local leagues are better funded. I think so long we relied on organizations like little league that were basically volunteer run organizations yeah, yeah. that faded away. So I do think it will change for the player who's like nine, 10, 11, 12. Now, I don't know that that's much hope for them, but what I do think is everything creates an opportunity. So I think about two years ago, I did the whole baseball circuit of speeches and I talked to, about this to coaches, exact thing that I think there's a massive business for players that just to offer baseball experience for players that are late developing players and players that want a sane option. So this comes as a surprise to most people, but my children don't play baseball and I don't care if they do or they don't. 
my job is not to make them baseball players. My job is to make them great men. And so whatever whatever path they choose, that's their path. But people are usually shocked at that. And then I explain to them, that's, that's reason number one, is that I don't care what they do. That's up to them, what they do, what's important to them. But they don't have to do what their dad did. And secondly, is there's no sane option in my account. So when my son offered baseball, this was first grade baseball, and it was three practices a week and then a game on Sunday, three hour and a half practices. Now, they're seven years old. I don't know what you're doing for an hour and a half with you know, 12, <laughs> 13, seven-year-olds, but three days a week and then Sunday morning. So Sunday mornings, we go to church. Uh, we're Christians. We live with Christian values in our home and we go to church and that's where we go. And that is the... So as a family, we have values and those values are in my kid's room, are hung in my kid's room. They're on my refrigerator. They are agreed upon. They are you know, talked about and they are encouraged. The top of our values in our home everyone's different home is that we honor God and go to church. So if I throw out, if I say baseball is more important than that. If I throw out my first value, well, I might as well throw the rest of them out. You don't have to do your homework on time. You don't have to be respectful to others. You don't have to tell the truth. You don't have to be generous and giving to others. I might as well throw the rest of them out too. So I'm in the sane option. If there were a sane opportunity for my children to play baseball, they would probably be in it. But there's not. There's just not one. And I thought for about seven seconds about creating one, then I thought against it. But the other problem is too, is that I want my kids to be in swimming and karate and tennis and doing a vast array of other things. Well, three practices a week and in the first grade doesn't give me a lot of time. And so Mrs. Reddick, baseball, before it even got to Mr. Reddick. <laughs> so, um, relation of our family. Back. Yeah. And so th- what I think there's an opportunity is for people to create an option for late developing players and then people that want a sane option, which I think there are an incredible amount of people that want a sane option, but they're with the insane option because that's the only one available to them. They would love to back it down a little and to not have it be so expensive and so time consuming and stuff like that. Because here's another thing too, that I think most of the baseball people that get caught up in this don't understand. If you, let's say you're a family of three kids, right? Right. The, the commitment to travel baseball is massive. Yeah. And what happens with kids is that every year it gets a little bit more, the time, the money gets a little bit more, and the intensity goes up. And so when the kid plays these eight, nine, 10, he doesn't know, right? He's a kid, right? But 10, 11, they start thinking, hmm, this is a little harder this year than it was last year. And then 12, oh, this is a lot harder than it was last year. And I'm putting in more time. And then all of a sudden, like the kid turns 13 or 14, and I get calls from dads all week long. They're saying, you know, all he wanted to do was play baseball. And now all of a sudden, he wants to go to the mall with his friends and like something about girls. And I'm like, okay. Mother of nature. That's yeah. testosterone. That's not, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's a lots of luck with that one. But here's the problem is that it's not that the kid doesn't love baseball anymore, is that it doesn't love it that much. As much as he wants to be a kid and do other things, and what happened, and it would create this ongoing thing that makes it so hard to do and be anything else other than a baseball player. And what baseball coaches really miss, I think, in the creation of this is that. When you're at, so you got that family of three kids, when that older kid is 12 and the others are 10 or eight or whatever, and all of a sudden the commitment is to this travel baseball, which is all over the place. You're doing two things. You're separating the family in a lot of ways. Never a good thing. And then all of a sudden, I get a lot of dads who are calling me up saying, you know, we wanted to go to Disney World this year. And the coach is telling us that if we're not at the tournament, we had had our Disney vacation booked for this time and I don't know what to do. I say, tell the coach. I can't say it on your family podcast, but tell the coach to no, go. You know, you and go no, to Disney World. Take your kids to go to Disney World. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can say anything you want on this on this podcast. By the way, tell the coach to go screw. Tell the coach to go screw and go to Disney World. All right, because and so what? But here's what happens, and this is very real for a lot of families. Is now all of a sudden the twelve kid 
his activity is now depriving the 10 and the eight-year-old siblings of their natural kind of going and doing things because there's such a time commitment. And when you start canceling family vacations to do youth athletics, I think we've that's gone to a pretty bad spot. Yeah, no, I mean, that gets pretty deep. I mean, I, I'd love to stay on this topic, but I want to switch gears a little bit just so we could get into some of the strength stuff. It. You talk a lot, or actually you, you had it a lot in load to explode about the core and how important the core was and activation exercises. And you also have kettlebells for baseball. So you've got a really, you know, you've got a deep fitness background also. And how would you say that translates to other sports in terms of the core? Can you talk about the core for not only baseball, but the other sports that are, you know, that that are mainstream, like soccer and basketball, and even I would say CrossFit to that extent, because there's a lot of Olympic weightlifting and there's a lot going on there. So your many years of experience, you've seen the fitness industry develop and the word core has been used so much. So can you talk about that a little bit? Again, I these words are buzzwords, right? You know, like core is a great buzzword because people associate core with six-pack abs and then they associate six-pack abs with so many other things. The way I look at developing an athlete, and, and I'm just going to preface this by saying, I'm in no way an expert on strength conditioning, but I know what my limitations are. And I would say to anyone who's listening is that there are tons of experts. And so I do work with people like we work with Jeff Cavalier and in Kettlebells with Baseball, we worked with uh, guy's one of my best friends. I call him my uncle, my Uncle Mike. Uncle Mike Staley is a kettlebell expert. So there's, there's so much that we do where we collaborate with people who are the experts. And so I'm always looking at how... like So I'm, I'm an architect, right? So I'm always looking at how the athlete moves. And what I see from a lot of athletes is I think you see players that... Let's just take a baseball pitcher who lifts his leg and his head goes back or or his head goes down, or he twists when he goes to pitch, or you see a soccer player who can't turn or can't cut, or a lacrosse athlete who can't cut, or or a volleyball player who maybe can't jump, or you know all these different things, or can't you know rotate into a, a serve. And I'm always looking at at the movement that they're doing, and usually to me, and, and I'm I'm not an expert. This is just the way I think about it, and it's been helpful to a lot. I think the first movement of any athlete really determines their level of like connectedness, how connected their body is. And at the core of that <laughs> is the core, <laughs> right? And so I think most people too misidentify the cores. I look at the core from kind of like the top of the knees all the way up to like the armpits, you know, not just like kind of ab exercises and stuff like that. So I'll tell you the best, probably the best, the most useful illustration I've ever seen was there was a video that was talking about core strength and how important it is. And the, the evaluator was evaluating a boxer, MMA fighter. This MMA fighter kept getting knocked out. And he was good. Like, there was no reason why. I mean, if you saw this, you'd be like, who are the people knocking this guy out? Like, he was just getting in a lot of, he was getting himself in bad spots and fights. And so what they realized was that when he lifted his leg to kick, he urged his, his upper body back a little bit too much. And that left, like, his jaw open, like, susceptible to being hit. And I don't know much about fighting, but I know you hit the guy in the right spot and he can go down. And so that's what was happening. And so what they figured out was had, this guy looked like Adonis, right? He could be on a cover of men's health, but he had an inefficiency in his core that when he lifted, he didn't have to sustain the height of his kick and that altered his head and that head and that left him open being susceptible 
to a knockout punch. And to me, I thought that was the most fascinating look at just how important all this stuff ties together. That to me is also what we talked about earlier. That is the coach working with a physical therapist, strength trainer, right? Because as a boxing coach, I don't know if you pick that up. You probably work on kicks, right? Everybody yeah. sees through their own lens. But when working together, now you can, you, you, this, we have to do these things. Why, why I collaborate? Because, you know, so years I've called, you know, Jeff, who's a friend of mine, say, you know, I can't figure this out. Help me figure this out. Or, or a lot of the people that I know, I coach about 50 fitness entrepreneurs. So a little bit of access there yeah. to them. They can see things that we as coaches just can't see. I can tell you another one too that, so I don't know if Joe DeFranco, Jim Smith. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I follow okay. Joe DeFranco. Yep. So there are two great friends of mine. And so Jim Smith, probably my best friend. And there was a guy doing a squat and like where you're clean it and squat. I don't know the exact name of the uh, exercise, but it was kind of a CrossFit type move. Yeah. Clean. Yeah. It would be clean. Yeah. And so guy's foot would shift when he lifted every time his foot, it would, sh- it would shift. And basically, if you looked at like, you know, like Jim, who's like, you know, genius looking at it, he's like, no, this is not like a problem with his upper body strength. His upper body strength is fine because he's yanking this whole thing up basically yeah. with his upper body strength. And he was like, he, the guy can't, he's not connected. He's like not hooked up here. And in baseball, the way we would describe that, that was to, to me, what was important about that is that was kind of the merging of like moving weight is moving weight. Yeah. Whether you're moving a barbell or a baseball, baseball is a five ounce weight. It's a weight. So we say with a pitcher is a pitcher that doesn't have pitchers. Let's say we're using like an analogy of voltage. Let's say a pitcher's got a hundred volts of energy in his lower body, hundred volts in his upper body, but his core is 75 volts. Well, that hundred volts that's coming up through, you know, through that kinetic chain can't pass a hundred volts through a 75 volt converter. Yeah. And so that to me, watching Jim break down that lift of saying he's shifting that foot so he can get leverage because he doesn't have the core, his core strength is not, he's not able to transfer that energy up. So he's just moving his leg to gain a leverage position. And like that was just fascinating to me. And you should have him on your show, brilliant. But so like that to me is the core, right? Is it's connected. I think that hooks up everything. So going in through like exercises and everything like that, I that I'd probably defer. What did you say his name was again? Jim Smith. Jim, Jim Smith. Smith. He's, yep. He's Joe D's partner. I can connect you with him. Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome to get him on here. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that's the thing is that you got the coaches looking kind of at the movement and saying, this movement doesn't look right. What is it? Now it's collaborating with someone who can say, now I don't know that all, all issues are core related or anything like that. I, I can't speak to that. But I've just been fascinated by those two examples of just that they connected back to something that was really, like we said, like what gets our attention always, isn't always important. And I think with the boxer, like what gets our attention is guys getting knocked out, right? Yeah. And, but that's not really what was important was his core. His core, his deficiency in his core is what was causing him to be out of position to put him in that susceptible spot. So, you know, to me, I look at that. I think it's, I think when you're a coach or you're an athlete, and that's why you have to collaborate with so many different people that can spot those things. No, that's actually a really good. Uh, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because we had Ruben Garcia, who's a movement specialist here in Kuwait. And he was on and he was talking about movement and the importance of having that team to look at it from a different perspective because it is so important. You'll spot something before I spot it. So, I mean, that's so true, especially when it comes to the core. Now, what would you say, like, if we were to talk about the core, other than that, what would be like another go-to muscle that you see that fails a lot uh, for athletes? I don't want to say baseball specifically, but across the board, because you have a decent background in that. But what muscle group would you say fails a lot? Would it be besides the core? 
would you attribute it to, you talked about ankle mobility earlier. And I know mobility is different than strength, but what are some other failing parts that you see this day and age compared to like five or six years ago? So in my experience, there's a lot of hip injuries. Now, I look at it from a different perspective as far as like muscles and injuries and stuff. Again, we all look through our own lens. I'll talk about it in my world of baseball just because I can make them coherent analogies there, but but it makes sense across the board. So I don't know that there are failing muscles as much as there are workloads that are just out of balance, right? So I see, you know, certainly I have a lot of clients who are CrossFit gym owners and they will tell you that there are athletes in their gym that they're working with, CrossFit athletes they're working with that just train too much and they're not weak and they're not injured. But the only time that they're weak and injured is when they think they should train the way they think they should train. So there's nothing wrong with their body. It's there's, there's wrong with their workloads and their volume and their intensity, which, which they're working out. So I think anytime there's an injury, I think you have to look at, we're so quick to say, well, then we need to repair that or that's weak or that's whatever. But was it only weak as compared to the workloads and the volume we were asking out of that athlete? Now, to say that if you want to compete at a higher level, it doesn't mean that you don't have to train to that level. But I'm always just very keenly aware of that because I work with a lot of business owners and so entrepreneurs. And I'll tell you this, I have, also, I have like wicked ADHD. I'm on medication, coaching, the whole thing. I, like I have it like from the strain of ADHD, like the initial, <laughs> the initial like strain. Of it. And so the only time that I have a problem with my focus is when I think I should be focused all the time. But when I'm focused, I've had no problem focusing on this. You know, I have no problem focusing on certain things. But it's when I have this idea that I should be focused all the time is when I struggle with focus. When I accept the idea that I shouldn't be focused all the time, kind of very freeing. So for an athlete to think, you know, should you be able to train high intensity every day? Well, that would be the reason why you're hurt, right? It's because you have a belief that you should be training at high intensity every day when your body doesn't have that belief because you're breaking down. Or somebody thinks that they should perform at a certain level. So, I mean, to answer your question, you know, I don't know that I'm the most qualified to talk about that. That's no, understandable. Um, I mean, I, you yeah. see the kids developing now. I mean, I see it at least where children are developing a lot differently than they were 10 years ago. And I think that was the root of my question of, do you see more t- kids with tighter hips so they can't move as much? Or, you know, the, the shoulders rounding forward? Or, yeah, I mean, what do you see from your perspective over there? I mean, like I said, hip injuries I hear a lot of. And I think that a lot of that is just improper mechanics that are taught to taught to kids. And I think that's what's called a little bit of that. And then, you know, there's the typical kind of shoulder elbow issues that kind of always come up. But definitely there's like the hip thing is probably the biggest thing that I've noticed. And, the, and you know, like when you're around kids, you know, like so most of my career, I coached hundreds of kids per year. You know, when you hear something, you don't hear a lot. The typical injuries, like, oh, my elbow's a little stiff or sore or whatever. Like, you know, like 13-year-old kids should be having hip problems. Yeah. You know, stuff yeah, like that, yeah, you know. No, and true. I don't know if that's just, again, I don't know if that goes back to the volume or the intensity that they're doing things. I don't know. But that is definitely, I've definitely heard more about the hips of late than, than definitely in, in the last decade. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense, man. And I'm taking up a lot of your time right now. And we really didn't Go get into any of, we didn't get into any of the strength questions. I'd love to bring you back on so we could talk a little bit more in terms of the strength stuff because those were some questions that I had lined up. And like I said before, like you know, we kind of veer if we veer off, it's cool, man. But if if we do talk about strength, what are some of your favorite uh, kettlebell exercises? Since you do have kettlebell for baseball, what are some of the kettlebell exercises that generally you would pick as your faves? So I generally work out with kettlebells, mostly myself, because like one of my best friends is a kettlebell guru. 
Mike Staley. Okay. So I, I think the kettlebell swing to me, I think is just a perfect exercise in so many ways. I think anytime you can load your posterior chain like that effectively, I think the I think there's so many benefits to it. Again, and I'm regurgitating here and no means by an expert, but I definitely think there's when I am consistent with my swings and I'm not consistent with my swings, I definitely feel stronger. And I think properly executed swing is just a terrific exercise. I do think people go too heavy sometimes with their swings, but I love kettlebell swing. I also love a goblet squat holding the kettlebell from underneath, not on the horns. Um, I know people have different ways, but for me personally, I like... I almost feel like after I get done doing uh, some kettlebell front squats like that, I almost feel like my whole body works better. And so that would definitely be go-tos for me. And then I also think like kettlebell lunges are great. I think it's a pretty safe way to load a lunge. I'm always very worried about... There's a lot of people in kind of my world that advocate for big heavy lifting and stuff like that. And that's great. You know, and again, everybody looks through their own lens. So they're looking through the lens of people coming into their gym and lifting big heavy weights. And that's great. But my lens is the kid who's in his garage. Yeah. Because that's my reality. That's my kid is not in the gym with an expert who's writing a program and watching his loads and watching his rest and and training him. Right. I got a kid who's out there with some weights he got for Christmas and it's amateur hour. And <laughs> kids and kids get kids get hurt, right? It's true. So it's true. I I think the, the more ways we can give kids safer ways to load, the better. So I think like a, a reverse lunge with a kettlebell is another one of my favorite exercises. And I also like the, uh, I think it's called a Kostak, Cossack? Kwasak squat. No. Kwasak. No, no, this is a press. It's kind of like when you're down, almost like as a catcher and you're doing your alternate presses. I don't remember what yeah, it's called. Yeah, yeah, that's a Kwasak uh, squat. Yep. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's, like, so, so it's kind of like you, you go down to one side and straighten out the other yes. leg, heel on the ground, toes pointed yes. up. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yes, I like that one. I think that, for me, is a really beneficial exercise. And then, I, you know, we had Dan John come and speak to our business group for, which was like, I had two of my dream come trues in one year. I met Dan, Dan John and Steve Cotter in the same year, which was pretty cool. And Steve uh, Cotter, who wrote uh, Rise of Superman? No, Steve Cotter, who's the kettlebell expert all right <laughs> yeah. wrong guy yeah Steve Carter, <laughs> you, you should you should look him up i mean if you want to talk about a freak of nature he is a freak of nature i mean he's just flipping and catching 28 kettlebells just flipping them up in the air wow. and catching them like as if yeah he is an absolute freak of nature so i, I love also farmer walks i love oh, carries yeah. i think they're just great so sometimes like a great mix-up for me and is just doing like walks and carries you know with overhead and then racked and then holding it down by my side so those are my favorite kettlebell exercises. I mean, there's definitely a lot you can do with kettlebells. I mean, my go-to is, and I do this for my warm-ups, is usually a windmill. I love it. I think it's like one of the best warm-ups I have. So, all right, I'm going to switch gears again a little bit, and let's go into uh, rotational movement. You have load to explode, and you know there's a lot of rotational movement in baseball, and a lot of my training, or a lot of my strength training when I was in baseball season was you know throwing a med ball and rotating the hips and doing wood chops with like a band or something. So how important do you think rotational movement is for general health, not just for sport? I'm going to give you a couple of resources too, I think that are really, really smart about this. There was a study that came out that in rotational athletics, any rotational athletics, uh, tennis, volleyball, golf, baseball, that 80% of the power came from rotational movement, um, which I agree with. But the problem was that all the tests were done with a preset lower half. 
So in other words, if we put your lower half in the right position, and then we ask you to rotate, 80% of it comes from rotation. That's great. That's assuming we can get to that optimal position, right? So that's a tennis player who maybe can't get his feet right, or, or a golfer who's out of, you know, his feet are out of position, or, or weak, or a baseball pitcher or hitter that can't get his foot down into the right position. So all of that, I think, is important. I would probably defer everything that I would say about rotation to a guy that I don't know, but I've been following, and I use a lot of his products. His name is David Weck, and he invented the BOSU ball. Okay. And he has a couple products that would really be helpful to your athletes. He's got this, it's called RMT rope, which is a, basically trains all, using your lats and, and getting into a rotation of figure eight motion of rotation. And he's got these hand, they're not weights, but they're kind of like shakers that are like designed for your hand. But he is, he's fun. I mean, he's a lot of fun. He's definitely a character, but he's also brilliant. I would probably defer most of okay. that to watch him. He has a real interest in baseball. And he's got these clubs called, and I work out with all this stuff. He's got these clubs called the RMT club, which, so to me, I think when you're looking at like rotation, if you were just like training an athlete rotation, I would say that you definitely want to be doing in multi-planes. You want to be doing it in multi-directions. And then you want to make sure that you're training both sides equally. I think that is a huge, if you tell the kids, you give them a medicine ball, tell them to throw it against the wall. He's going to throw it against the wall like his dominant way. So I think in any of those movements, you know, it definitely has to be multi-plane, multi-directional. I also think too that all of your rotational work should be done on your feet. I think especially for an athlete, I think when we get down on the ground and do too much stuff, I think we kind of dis- we separate and disconnect that transfer of energy through the kinetic chain. So I think all of that should be done on your feet. But you should check out David Weck. Check out his Instagram. It's entered, if at the very least, it is super entertaining. <laughs> no, I, d- I definitely will. And everyone's going to crucify me because you came on and you're a fan of the BOSU ball. And- I shit on the Bosu ball all the time. I hate it. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I don't. I don't use just, the Bosu ball. I don't me, use though. the Bosu ball. I mean, ball. I'm, I'm very yeah. honest, and, and all the guys that listen to the podcast that know me, they're probably gonna be like, "Oh, see, you had someone say that the Bosu ball is actually useful," and I'm like, "Damn it!" <laughs> you know? Well, so, I, I don't use it. I, I can't really speak to the. I don't use the Bosu ball myself, so I can't speak. He just invented it, so you know that was just. But but the stuff he has now, I think, is really really helpful. Oh, it's de- that's um, awesome! Like, I'm definitely cool. going to yeah. check him out. Like I've been writing a bunch of names down as you've been speaking, you know, just to kind of like follow up on some of these guys later on. They'll probably be in the show notes, also, dude. Thank you very much. And what we've been doing lately is we kind of do like a little rapid fire segment towards the end. Yeah, you know, they're okay. just kind of okay. quick, goofy questions. First thing that pops into your head. All right. So if you could explore space or the ocean, which one? Oh, the ocean. I was in the Coast Guard Auxiliary four years. I'll go into the ocean. All right. Deadlift or squat and why? And you can only do it for the rest uh, of your life. Deadlift because you get to <laughs> you get to drop it and it's cool. <laughs> All right. That's cool. There's nothing like that sound when you when you got it and then you let it go and there's a certain amount of weight that hits the ground. It's just right, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, understandable. <laughs> bands or dumbbells? Oh, bands. Bands. All right. Um, I like bands. Yeah. What about what about kettlebell or dumbbells? Kettlebell. Kettlebell. All right. If you had to play one sport for the rest of your life, and it can't be baseball, American football, or hockey, or basketball, what sport would you play? Tennis. Ooh, that's have, a good one. Tennis is my absolute favorite sport to play. That's a good one. That was a quick answer on tennis, man. <laughs> I got to give you credit. Most people would have yeah, played tennis because I played tennis. But it's a. I had a friend who was a professional tennis player and introduced me to the game when I was like twenty-two. And uh, yeah, I mean, like as far as like if you, I would definitely, uh, tennis is my favorite sport to play. It's just, uh, to me, I feel like it's, it uses all the things that I learned in baseball at, at like a faster pace. Okay. Yep. Vegan or carnivore for the rest of your life? 
So that's an easy question because right now I am into month two of the carnivore diet. Oh, so the only go. thing I eat are <laughs> beef, salt, and water. And we go down a long rabbit hole with this one, but I, I have had some pretty crazy results, carnivore diet over the last like 40 days. I'm interested right now. So what results have you seen? Like I've wanted to try it, but I don't have the guts to do it. So like, what have you seen? Yeah. So I do another podcast with former clients, a guy named Ryan Muncy. We do a podcast called Going 567, which is just kind of conversations that we have that we record. And so he did the carnivore diet. And so I just did it. I just, I had done vegan for 30 days and I felt fine. It was okay. And I was like, oh, let me go the other way. Let me see how that works. And so I didn't need to really lose weight. I didn't feel that wasn't like a goal of mine, but I've lost eight pounds in that first 40 days. And I have no desire for any kind of junk food whatsoever. So we're now in Christmas season here. My wife is baking dozens and dozens of cookies. That's her thing is to give out cookies to our neighbors and friends and stuff like that. And I've had two cookies, mainly because I was just in the wrong moment, wrong time, just hungry. Yeah. But even on Thanksgiving, I, I had some stuffing and stuff like that, but I didn't have nearly the meal. Like I'd probably have about 30% of the meal that I normally would have. I have no desire for ice cream, junk food or anything. And it's very, very weird. It's weird to say, like when I was doing vegan, I would have licked a pack of raw bacon. Like I would have, <laughs> like, any, like I was desiring any of that. But with this, it's just hard, really hard to describe. You don't miss it because the desire is just not there. And my energy is good. Everything's good. I'm going to get my blood work done in after Christmas. And so we'll see. But do you feel do you feel that you've had like a jack up in testosterone at all? Like, I mean, when I go heavy on meats, I eat red meat like all the time. And if I don't eat red meat, I feel sluggish. I feel crappy if I'm just eating chicken. So how can you gauge the range of your testosterone on a good day or a bad day? Or I don't know. I mean, I'll know when I get my, my blood panel back if it's gone up. I do feel I do require less sleep. I do have more motivation to work out. So those are usually signs of you know, more motivation and activity to, or, yeah. you know, to do that, usually signs of testosterone going up. But yeah, I've never, I've tried all kinds of different diets. I've never had something quite like this. Just, and if the blood work comes back fine and everything's good, I'm going to watch it. I mean, I, yeah, I'd probably stay with it. All right, man. I got a more personal question for you. If you're prepared to answer okay. this one, <laughs> this is, sure. this is sure. pretty per- How the poop's been? Because <laughs> we we all know, like, uh, when you go on, like, that you is know, th- low carb and all that shit, that, that it just kind of, you get the constipation and whatever, but how's it been for you? Because some people don't. Some people have the opposite. So it is different. Okay. All right. <laughs> what all right. I was I'll, used to. All right. I'll take uh, it. It is different. I'll, I'll take your word for uh, it. It is a, definitely a change in, how do I say it? it? It's coming out quicker. Okay. All right. All right. That's, okay. no, that, that's quicker, cool. But. Look, my co host, Meg, she's our gut health expert. So that's probably a question she would definitely okay. ask you. And we're actually having a colon doctor come on our show in the future oh, to wow. talk about, I, was t- I call him the poop doctor at the gym. So, <laughs> so I was, I was asking, awesome. I was like, so what qualifies a good poop and what's constipation? He's like, dude, you know this. And I was like, can you come on the show? He's like, yeah, sure. I was like, all right, we'll have a show all about what your bowels should actually be doing. So that's great. Sorry about that personal question, but I had to ask, man. No problem. And, you know, no problem. Give me, I always try and give the listeners as much insight as possible. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess everybody knows you really well right now. Dude, I hope you'd come back on the show in the future. would love to have you back on. It was definitely some great conversation about coaching. I think that was the highlight of this. We kind of stayed away from the, you know, the fitness stuff and just really that 
your four pillars, I think that's great. And I think that's something a, a lot of coaches and athletes need to look at. So thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. I'm super happy to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.